Friends, I'd like to welcome you to our Thanksgiving service today. Uh, for those whom I've not met, my name is Scott and uh, I'm the minister of the church here and I will be uh, conducting the service uh, this morning. We have come together for several reasons. First of all, we've come to give thanks to God for Ross, for the life that he led. Uh, we've come to express uh, something of our loss and to comfort one another at, the, at this time. And we've come in order to hear uh, the promises of God. Uh, Ross uh, with Audrey have been uh, much loved and are much valued members of our congregation here for many, many years. Uh, too many years for me to be able to remember. I've been here for 18 years, but they were well and truly established long before I was. And uh, it is, um, uh, I've mentioned to the congregation on Sunday that uh, Ross's passing is a loss for our church. Uh, his Christ-centred grace, his gentleness, his love, his wisdom, all matched with his humility, uh, have been a great blessing and an example for many people in our church over generations. As they have been uh, for each one of us here today. We're here today because Ross has touched our lives uh, in one way or another. Whether we're family, uh, friends, congregation members, we're here uh, to uh, celebrate and to give thanks to God for one of the truly great ones. Uh, Ross has been an inspiration and an, encourage, an encourager and a much valued person in all of our lives. Today is a difficult day because of our loss, but it's a day in which we're able to give thanks to God for the countless ways that uh, he has shown his kindness to us through Ross. And it's also a day uh, whereby we can give thanks to God for Jesus, uh, for the Lord and the Saviour whom Ross trusted in, and we can give thanks to God for our sure and certain hope in the resurrection and in the eternal life that he offers for all who put their trust in Jesus. I'm going to uh, invite you to pray with me now as we commit our service into God's hands. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come together on this special and in some ways difficult day. We thank you for Ross and for the many blessings that we have received uh, through his life. We especially pray that you would bring comfort to Audrey, to the family, and all of us who are gathered here this morning. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, that as we hear of your promises, that we would believe, that we would be comforted, that we would receive the hope and the joy which you offer. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We've come to remember Ross and to uh, give thanks to God for uh, the uh, life which was well lived, a life which was lived in service of our Lord. And so I'm going to invite uh, three of Ross and Audrey's children uh, to come up the front now. I'm going to invite Ross, Megan and Elizabeth and uh, they're going to spend some time sharing with us about their dad. So I warmly welcome you to come forward now. That, uh, thanks very much, Scott. Uh, we're going to do this sort of sequentially, so Megan and Elizabeth will, will come after me. Firstly, on behalf of my mother and of all the family, just like to thank you very much for your, your presence here today. 
both the people who, who knew Dad well and are here to remember him, and people who are here to support us and our members of the family. And I'd like to make a, a special mention of a couple of people who've travelled from a long way to get here. Um, my Auntie Jean, our Auntie Jean, who's Mum's sister, who's made it up here, and also one of Dad's very closest friends, Arthur Delbridge. Also, just to thank the, this church community and Scott for all they've done over the last few days to help us with preparing for this, to, for this day. We've written a, a kind of brief memoir of Dad's life, which is available in the order of service. And you'll see from that that his life was in some ways literally a journey, meant to very many places. The three of us, Megan and Elizabeth and myself, we're going to sort of flesh that, that journey out by commenting on some aspects of, of Dad's life. There's a lot we could say, uh, and it's a little bit random what you pick, pick to say, but I hope we can give a sense of the, of the man. I'm going to start with probably something that is one of the least important things, and that's talking about their dad's attitude towards, towards wealth and possessions. And I think it would be fair to say of dad that, he, that uh, he didn't live life in order for, to find leisure or consumption. He was not a, not a man for either of those, either of those things. And uh, I think it was largely almost a, a consumption-free zone. One of my memories from childhood is the, a sort of annual excursion to the David Jones women's store where he'd consult some lady salesperson about to get a, get a, get a, a present for mum. I think generally the result was a nighty. And uh, we, we found quite a lot of these. Mum's got a lifetime supply as we helped them move from their home. We're pretty sure that up until he retired at 79 from, from practice, he'd never been in a supermarket either. And uh, he, he, I don't think he ever actually went into Coles or Woolworths. He, he was a great devotee of the Hastings Co-op, uh, something he really loved. More seriously, one of the big events in um, the life of our family was when they made the decision to move from Cessnock to Sejuna. And talking to Dad about that, I said, what, 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 why were you doing that? Because he was very successful in, in Cessnock and doing work he really valued in a mining community that was, had been very deprived. And what had happened was that when he went there, the medical practice was still very much covered by what was called the honorary system. So a lot of public work that doctors did, they didn't get paid for. And gradually, people started paying him for all this work. And Dad said, well, one of the reasons I went to, to, to Sir was I, I didn't like all the money I was earning. We're, we're getting too much money. And uh, I think they're... Uh, I don't... Well, I haven't really discussed this with my brothers and sisters, but I'm pretty fair to say that they, they hadn't, didn't make too many economically rational decisions over, the, over their lives. One of Dad's favourite phrases was a phrase which he called the gift of time. He had great consciousness that, that somehow he'd been given the gift of time. He didn't think he'd been given this because he was someone special. Rather, he, he felt this enormous responsibility to make the most of every, every moment. Some of this went back to his, his war service, where he had a couple of very close calls. He was actually hit in the head by a bullet from an Australian plane, I have to say, which had overshot the mark while strafing something. And I think he was one of those people who'd come back from the war sent with a sense that they'd perhaps been spared to, and better get, on with, better get on with things. But more deeply than that, I think he was someone who had an enormous sense that, that time and, and life were, were God's gift and that you'd better use them well. For Dad, I think using it well meant a couple of things. 
One was, one was praise. I think Dad's fundamental attitude towards, towards God, towards his faith, was an attitude of praise. And I think he thought that we're put on earth to praise God. And the hymns we're singing today are some of Dad's, Dad's favourite hymns. Probably hundreds of hymns we could have chosen from. But these are some of his favourites. And the last hymn today, All People That On Earth Do Dwell, was, I think, a particular favourite. But in addition to praise, I think his, his way of living responsibly was to always look to do good. And I think we're looking at a life of someone who sought to do, to do good at, at, in every possible way. Alongside that, I think this, this life of celebrating the gift of time was marked by joy. I don't think there's anyone that would ever suggest that his, his faith was a dour faith. It was a joyful faith. And it was something that I think he was able to share with others. When you talk to people uh, who were Dad's friends and who worked with Dad, the thing that people often mention is, is encouragement. He was a great encourager of people. And he had a great gift for friendship and fellowship. When I, I have been helping Dad write letters to friends in his, in his sort of as he got less able to do that himself, and looking through his, his uh, address book. From every stage in his life, there are, there are friends that he kept and kept contact with. I want to now say a few words about Dad's kind of Christianity. It was a Christianity that was centred around the Bible and prayer. I think for our, for their mum and dad's grandchildren, my, my generation's children, one of the things they probably most mem- will, will most remember is seeing mum and dad in their bedroom early in the morning, reading their Bibles and, and praying. By this stage, they were getting up at four o'clock and having breakfast there. <laughs> so as we all sort of struggled up around six or seven o'clock in the morning, they were well at truly probably ready for the equivalent of morning tea, I think. But that prayer, uh, prayer and Bible reading were, were central to their, their, way of being, their way of being Christians. It was a kind of non-dogmatic Christianity, in my view. My dad wasn't really interested in religious arguments. And in a funny way, they, they weren't, it, was, it was non-denominational. Mum and Dad loved this church, and they loved the church community here. I, don't, I doubt they ever thought of themselves as Presbyterians or Anglicans when they went to the Anglican church in Sojourner or Congregationalists when they went to the Congregational church in Cessna. More, they looked for places where they could experience great Christian, Christian fellowship. And I think for them, the most important Christian activities, apart from that fellowship, local fellowship, were the great sort of 20th century interdenominational organisations like Scripture Union, the Bible Society, the missionary organisations, and of course the Bush Church Aid Society, to which Dad, for which Dad worked for a number of years. One thing that's always struck stuck in my mind: they were very keen for us to have a, a good education, and they they sent us off to to private schools. And it always struck me that they managed to find private schools which had no connection with religion. And I said to Dad, you know, you've sent us off to non-religious schools. And he said, oh, the best way of putting people off the face is to send them to church schools. Now, I think that probably says something about church schools in the 60s and 70s, maybe. Perhaps not so much now. But that's, that was... They had a great dislike, I think, of formalism in religion. The next thing I'd like to say, and in some ways almost the most important, is that that Dad's life was lived in partnership with my mother. 
uh, an enduring love for 65 years. Everything they did, they did together. And all that Dad was able to do, I think, had Mum, Mum in the background. I think Dad had figured out after he retired that you could put a bit of plastic in a hole in the wall and, and money would come out, but I'm not sure they'd ever actually did that. He, he relied on Mum to hand over the, hand over the cash and mum to sort out the checks and all those sorts of things. They had a, a kind of really powerful division of labour. And, uh, but more than that, they had this sort of deep shared, shared faith, I think, which was strengthened each other. The final thing I'd like to talk about is Dad's final, final years. One of the things he prayed for in that time was what he called the gift of perseverance. He prayed for, for strength to per per persevere at a time when his health, he faced many health challenges. I'm, I'm from the non-medical side of the family, but I think the diagnosis was a really, really dodgy heart. Um, and it made life, life difficult and his, his sphere of activities were restricted. During that time, I think he sought, as always, opportunities to do good. He maintained his friendships and links with people. His, his power of correspondence, setting aside the illegibility of his handwriting, uh, was terrific and he prayed for as I say the gift of perseverance and I certainly believe that he was granted that blessing one of dad's uh, grandchildren Andrew Errington who's in Aberdeen and can't be with us today has sent over a few thoughts on these final years uh, which I'll just share with you by way of winding up my, my talk So Andrew said, one of the things that most struck me was, was Grandpa, in his case, Grandpa's stubborn refusal to give way to bitterness and frustration as his world got more, so much smaller over the years and his activities were curtailed. Instead, at least as far as I could see, he dedicated himself to patiently seeking to do what good he could within the possibilities available to him and to persist in seeing his circumstances as an opportunity for service. This, to me, was a really miraculous achievement. In all this, Grandfather embodied for me much of what it is to be a wise person in the truest sense. Wisdom means living in tune with how things really are. This is why it is desirable. Grandfather displayed for me the real possibility of the claim that true wisdom, a truly sensible, beautiful and reasonable way of life, is found in faith in Jesus Christ. His was the wisdom described by James. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and unhypocritical. A harvest of righteousness in peace is sown for those who make peace. I think our father was a peacemaker, an encourager, someone who sought to serve others and above all to praise, to praise God. Uh, thank you. Hi, it's a bit hard to follow on from that. Um, <clears throat> we thought it would be appropriate to spend a bit of time actually fleshing out a little bit more about Dad's work, partly because that was so important to him for so long. Um, for those of you who've known him for a while, he was a, you know, six-day-a-week worker, um, long hours. Often Sunday was just... Um, 
recovering, going to church and then dictating his notes that were still over from the rest of the week. Um, he, and it was a very valuable and important part of his life which he relinquished reluctantly after I think his second or third major heart attack and the doctor said, really, you have to stop. Um, so I thought it would be good to just um, stop with that side of his life uh, for a little while as well. Um, so just in outline, um, you know he was a doctor. Um, when he left school and uh, university wasn't open for him, but he, in the war he worked as an aid post sergeant and after discharge went straight into medical training at Sydney Uni um, and then became a general practitioner in Cessnock um, and then went out to Sejuna with the Flying Doctor Service. And while out there he was diagnosed with what was um, thought possibly going to be quite a crippling illness and uh, he decided he'd better retrain and become a psychiatrist, which as a psychiatrist myself, the fact that I was always told he did it so he could have something to do from a wheelchair was a little bit of a sort of um, funny way of starting into that career, but whatever. Um, he worked for years in Sydney at Prince Alfred, had a busy private practice and worked at St John of God Hospital at Burwood. Um, he had medical students, registrars, and he was working with, at, at Ingleburn already with, the, um, with veterans who were in trouble. Um, then he came to Newcastle, focusing mainly on training psychiatrists, but also working in the jail at Morissette um, and taking up his interest in psychogeriatrics. Um, and then Nepal and Pakistan as locum psychiatrists, and then private practice here in Port Macquarie. Um, and in, when in Port Macquarie, he was involved with the Association for Loss and Grief. He was involved with the Friends of the Mentally Ill, Relative and Friends of the Mentally Ill, and particularly with the Vietnam Vets Association. Um, and he took up ongoing mentoring opportunities as he could. Um, I thought I'd like to say, we, all, we always knew Dad had a very high value of his work, um, but I've come to understand it as I've thought about it a little bit lately and have talked with him a bit more um, and I thought I'd like to share my understanding of why it was so important to him. Um, I think it's really important to understand that Dad came to the practice of medicine um, at a time when he was confronted by the great evil of war and suffering. Um, and I think he carried that out of the war. I think he carried out of the war an awareness um, of how bad things can be, um, an awareness of the courage and strength and camaraderie of ordinary people. And he had that very deeply in his mind, I think, and in his heart. And he had an awareness that being able to relieve some of that suffering was a great gift. Um, I think he came out of the war with a deep conviction that actually in the face of evil, um, we need to help each other along. And that where there's suffering, you can actually be helpful and you can go towards people and bear some burdens with them. Um, and he felt that the practice of medicine was a great opportunity to do this. Um, so I think he had medicine as a vocation, medicine as a calling, and that this meant a few things for his practice, which are a little bit different from some other psychiatry practices these days. Um, the most important people were always your patients. Um, they're the focus of your work. He was always first and foremost a clinician. Um, and he had a deep respect for those he worked for. And he always, always spoke of them respectfully, talked of their strengths, talked of their capacities, talked of what they could do. Um, it also meant that you absolutely did your best for them. And that meant that you used the knowledge you could acquire. Um, he kept on reading journals up to just a couple of years ago. He was always interested in new developments. He was asking me if I could explain some neurodevelopmental research to him. And I'm thinking, oh, no, please forget about that, Dad. <laughs> Move on. Um, uh, he was always interested and open to new understandings that might enable him to help people. 
um, it meant that he saw himself always as a, being a part of um, a group of fellow healers, I think. Um, the name of Dr. Bob Day was part of my childhood. He was his, the doctor he worked with through the war and was his mentor for some years. And, and I think Dad had a very high opinion for learning off others and sharing with others what he regarded as this high vocation. He was well regarded in his field. Um, he was somebody that other psychiatrists, other doctors would go and see. Um, he was very well thought of and there's been things written about him. Um, uh, and, but I think he never really regarded that. The main job was how good you were and how hard you could work for your patients. Um, I think Dad enjoyed the fact that some of his family have also become medical practitioners and that he could share that focus with them. But I think he also had a very clear view that there are many ways to do the things that he valued. There are many ways to challenge evil when you see it, um, to relieve suffering and to encourage and accompany those in trouble. And I think as he got older, he saw that more and more in the ways other people um, were living their lives. As he aged, he saw himself serving in other ways. And I would like to testify that for some years when he saw I was in trouble, he did my ironing. He would come down and iron all the children's shirts and the children's school uniforms and get that going. And if we didn't rescue them, he'd iron the sheets and the pajamas and anything else that happened to be going. Um, so that kind of service was very important for him. Every time Dad said grace, he would ask God to be present to those going through difficult and dangerous times in the world and also to give wisdom to those whose job it was to help them. And I think that just remained a core um, approach to his life and he saw himself as that was his work to do right to the end and medicine was a lovely and glorious part of that. Thank you. I'm just going to fill in um, uh, the mission side of Dad uh, and a couple of other things. When, um, so, for most of my growing up years, uh, as Meg said, Dad was a bit of a workaholic, so he was a bit of a kind of distant but benign presence for me. And ironically, uh, we became much closer when I moved overseas. Um, when Steve and I first embarked on overseas mission, um, unlike some families whose parents were discouraging, uh, we were blessed because mum and dad uh, were wholehearted in their practical support and encouragement. And as a parent now with my own children, child overseas, I realise that that took some courage and sacrifice on their part. Um, and the fact that I took it for granted, I think, was because it was done so generously. In the days before um, the wonders of email and FaceTime and text, uh, Dad and Mum began and maintained a practice of regular letters every week. And if you've ever been privileged to receive a handwritten note from Dad, you will realise that a letter would give us many happy hours of deciphering. Um, then came his determination to visit us and really get to know the places we worked in and the people we worked with. And after initial reconnoitre, they came to work twice in Nepal and once in Pakistan, Dad giving a much-needed break to mission psychiatrists. They took on all the difficulties of life in a third-world country in their 60s. They were in Nepal for a revolution and an earthquake, uh, we loved having them and sharing experiences with them, but it was wonderful for us also to see them forging new and deep relationships with both Nepalis and expatriates and other people valuing their wisdom and support. And um, as Ross and Meg have said, Dad continued uh, to communicate with many of these people by mail and email and upheld them in prayer for many years. Dad and Mum became part of the InterServe mission family with us. 
uh, praying regularly, um, supporting others when they returned, um, offering their house as a place of rest. Um, this support um, extended to others as well, um, including the, the Shaws from this church that they kept in touch with. Um, Dad especially was concerned to support those involved in counselling and supporting missionaries working in really difficult places. Even this year, when the Nepali earthquake happened, um, Dad was keen for news and urged us to pray. The idea of the worldwide church and the need to support suffering brothers and sisters in Christ uh, was always very real to him. This bit is not quite part of my brief, but I think I, I just decided to put it anyway. I think it's linked, uh, and I think um, Ross and Meg have both commented a bit. I think one of the circumstances or the characteristics that made Dad um, such a wonderful father and grandfather was his constant commitment to support and pray for each one of us. This has been, this has been a strong thread uh, binding us together. He took great joy, as Ross said, in many things, but in each person's achievement and in individual gifts, his children and their spouses, his grandchildren and gradually their spouses and his growing brood of great-grandchildren. Be it a, a PhD, theological study, cross-cultural work, football prowess, musical ability, handiness with a drill or organisational skills, or for these tiny ones, their little songs and dances that they did for Grandma. He managed to convey pride and delight. In this last year, when many things became confused and uncertain, he was clear, sorry, he was clear about his commitment to each of us. He was clear about each of my children, what they were doing and what he could pray for them. And I know that applied to all of us. Uh, he even knew that the recent arrival of his two latest granddaughters and, and remembered that. I am so grateful. Uh, we are all so grateful for this legacy, a model of loving concern and unconditional support, support and especially one which pointed us beyond him to the one whose faithfulness he relied. Thank you, Elizabeth and uh, Megan and Ross. It's been wonderful, hasn't it, to uh, hear uh, uh, stuff about Ross that we, uh, we didn't know before. Come to think of it, I've lived in Port Macquarie for 18 years and I've never bumped into him in Coles or seen him at, seen him at the ATM. So um, that explains why, perhaps. Uh, friends, we've come to hear uh, from God. We've come to hear what God has to say to us at a time such as this. And so uh, we're going to read from the scriptures now. And uh, if you'd like to um, grab hold of one of those pew Bibles that you'll find in the pews, and uh, if you'd like to turn to page 815, uh, Ellie and Becky are going to read uh, most of that passage for us, the, uh, the verses that are listed for you. And uh, a little bit later on in the service, we're going to hear from uh, Ross and Audrey's son, Neil, who will be uh, expounding that uh, passage of scripture for us. Thank you, Ellie and Becky. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, 
and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, whether then, it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there was no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body, and he has, as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, 
so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you, Ellie and Becky, uh, for that uh, reading from Scripture. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I should give you forewarning. Uh, I have included some things in this that may make me tear up, so uh, we'll get through them. Uh, let me say, that desk end almost completely undid me, so uh, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, magnify your grace in our weakness. You would help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as your word and know its comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can imagine with uh, Dad's repeated heart attacks already alluded to, I have had some time to think about what I might preach at Dad's funeral. And there have been various versions of this talk, both in my head and on scraps of paper over the last few years. But they all have the same beginning. They all begin with the question, where's the good news? You see, when the teaching of Peter Cameron was troubling the church in 1992-93, and I was talking to Dad about it, Dad told me, where's is the good news? Where's the good news? Was the question he had developed to help him think through the similar views of Presbyterian professor Samuel Angus and those who had been trained by him. Angus had been the professor of New Testament for the Presbyterians in the 1920s and 30s and he denied the bodily resurrection, the real resurrection of Jesus and other miracles in favour of what he liked to call an ethical Christianity stripped of its supernatural husk. Dad told me he needed to think through those views because when he went to Cessnock in the 50s, the Presbyterian minister there was an Angus man. And so this had been Dad's guiding question. Where's the good news? In Angus's liberal moralism with its denial of the resurrection, where was the good news? What did it offer the humble, the weak, those struggling with life, with illness? Where was the grace for the wounded and broken sinners? What did it offer the dying? Dad decided it was without real grace and had nothing to offer, that it had no good news for the needy, the frail, the failed, people he cared for, people he thought included himself. And that's why I was baptised, and I didn't ask the others, <laughs> but it's why I was baptised in the Congregational Church, not the Presbyterian. Uh, where's the good news? It's a question worth asking now. Yeah, I know we're grateful for Dad's life, immeasurably grateful to God for being born into uh, this family, uh, for the kindness, the generosity, the encouragement, the example that you've heard about, grateful for his interest in each one of us and in our lives. 
And I know that we are grateful for Dad's release. The last few months were pretty miserable. But that gratitude does not mask or ameliorate in any way the ugliness of death or the grief of living in a world marked in every part of it by the constant presence and awareness of death. In many ways, our consciousness of what we have to be thankful for just heightens our horror at and resentment and fear of death of both the process of our decay, that anticipation of death in our bodies, and the event, the crossing of that absolute boundary that takes someone beyond our grasp for ever. This is the hard stuff, isn't it? Never to hear his voice again on the phone, never to receive a letter in that almost indecipherable handwriting, never to sit with him over a cup of coffee. There's no good news in death that robs us of the wisdom of one who, for his family, has known us longer than we have known ourselves, loved us from before we were born. That leaves us bereft, ever more alone in the world. Death that will come to us all and stuff out, snuff out the spark of life from even the most able, the most kind, and the most noble, noble, and bring the long dark. Death that will bring us to that time of accounting for our lives before our holy creator. The horror of death is not diminished by its frequency, and its pain is not lessened by the unthinking and unreal assurances of an unreflective materialism that tell you, you just die. Now we know today our loss is irrecoverable and absolute, and we know death, like our life as those made in God's image, is serious, for it ushers in eternity, an eternity determined by the life completed. It's given to us once to die, and after death, to face judgment. So where is the good news today? Good news for the grieving, good news for people who are frail and failed, good news for people afraid to meet their maker because they know they have not loved him or others as they ought. Well, the good news is in the place Dad found good news, the gospel of Jesus. You heard it being read. I want to remind you, says Paul, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. This gospel is good news because it saves. And it saves because it presents Jesus to us as an effective saviour, one who has died for our sins and been raised to life by God, raised alive in deathless life, never to die again, raised alive to forgive and give eternal life to all who call out to him, believing his gospel. Jesus, the gospel tells us, deals with our sin, with our defective and failed love of God and others. And he deals with the judgment it deserves. He died for our sins. His death was no accident, but the provision of God dying in our place. His death, the sacrifice that turns aside his just anger on our sin, the sacrifice that atones for our sin forever. The law's just punishment, death, is now fulfilled for those who are Christ's in Christ's death. And so it need never to be feared again for those who trust Jesus, who are his. And Jesus has been raised to a glorious new life, a life he shares with all who trust him. Believers are saved from judgment and death to be raised up in a new body, animated by the life Christ gives us, a life so different from the life we know now. Paul gives a hint of that glory, the glory of this new life in 1 Corinthians. He writes, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. We know that, don't we? It's and it's liable to decay. It is raised imperishable. It will never know death again. It's sown in dishonour, returning to dust. It is raised in glory, raised to live with God. It's sown in weakness. It can no longer go or do, where or what, do what it wills, but it's raised in power, able to do all it wills, and it will will to do the good. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body, animated by the Spirit of God, the Spirit we receive from Jesus. 
believing the gospel we will have from Jesus, a life which is fit for the presence of God, fit to live in the new heaven and the new earth when all things are made new. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. The gospel of Jesus is good news because it saves and saves completely. And the gospel is real good news. It's not just a protect projection of what we would like to be the case. As Paul makes clear, the gospel makes these promises on the basis of Jesus' demonstrated triumph over death in the fulfilment of God's plan revealed in the scriptures. The gospel's not giving us someone's speculation about what we might like to happen when we die. It's reporting an event, an event witnessed by many, something God has done in the world. Jesus has risen to be witnessed alive by many up to 500 at one time, Paul wrote, in, alive in the same body in which he died, to be seen, touched, spoken with, meals shared together with. Where death is felt and experienced in our bodies, death has been beaten, beaten by one man, Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of a real man, guarantees the resurrection of those who believe the gospel. It does more than just show that resurrection is possible. It guarantees it because in Jesus, the power of sin and death are broken. Christ, writes Paul, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is the first part of the harvest that guarantees and makes acceptable all the rest of the harvest, all who will follow Christ. For since through death, death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The Christian hope of resurrection is not a wish for the future, but a sure expectation because of what God has already done in the past in Christ. This gospel of Jesus is real good news, news you can rely on. And because it's real good news, the gospel is unique good news. We who have lived with the gospel all our lives can lose sight of its uniqueness, but nowhere else will you find someone who demonstrated the trustworthiness of his word, of his promise, by saying he would be killed and rise again from the dead and then done so. Jesus has shown us that he has a word which is stronger than death. And nowhere else will you find someone who says he will die to give life, not to the good or deserving, but to the undeserving, those who have sinned against his heavenly father and against himself. And so this unique good news is actually good news for all because it tells us of something God has done for us, something, not something we must do for God. It tells us of a forgiveness and life we receive from God, not something we offer God. And so this gospel of Jesus' death and rising is good news for the weak, for the unable, for those who have marred their lives by failure, moral failure, for those who have even ignored and rejected God. It's good news for all who know their need and believe the gospel and in believing open their empty hands to be filled by God's grace with what only God can give, forgiveness and life. And it is this good news because it has its origin in love. It says, doesn't it, in the scriptures that God so loved the world, that's people, people who don't love him but who live in rebellion against him. People who have been organised, in a sense, to shut God out from his creation. God so loved the world that he gave his unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This gospel is good news for all because it has its origin in love, and this is a love dad knew. Uh, I told you I'd been taking notes for a while, and in my folder there was a note from dad's 90th, and he'd spoken, he'd alluded to Romans 8 at that time, of that love from which nothing can separate us, a love which is known in knowing that God has given his son to give you life. Having given us his son, will he not also give us with him all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Dad knew this love. 
because he knew and was convinced of the truth of this gospel of Jesus that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. We know that, we see it in his choices over his life, we've heard it in his conversation, and for his family, this is good news that mum and dad have shared with us from the earliest stage when they taught us to read the Bible with those scripture union notes. Today, recognise that the gospel of Jesus is good news to know for yourself and never depart from. When your parent or grandparent or your friend or your uncle lives to 94, you feel you can count on a lot of life and you can put off thinking about your own eternity, put off committing yourself and pursue other things. But we are all only a heartbeat away from being where Dad is. Only one decision, turn left or right, overtake or not, from our end and meeting our Creator. Each of you needs to have entrusted yourself to the faithful living Saviour before that moment comes. And having once entrusted yourself to him, don't let this good word, this good news that promises life, be choked, taken for granted and so ignored. Let it be fruitful in you as it was in Dad. Live with Jesus as Lord. Live the time given to you on this earth to please Jesus wholeheartedly listening to him in his word and doing what he says, loving others with thankfulness and joy. Hearing this good news at his funeral is in many ways dad's last service to us all. His death has brought us together again. In his own end, he has brought us again to see our end. In his own believing, he has brought us to hear this word of hope, given not to the good and strong, but to the needy and grieving, to prodigals and sinners, to all who repent and believe, who trust Jesus by trusting his gospel and confess him as Lord. Trusting Jesus. Know the comfort of this good news today. Dad has fallen asleep in Christ. He's with the Lord, which is better by far. Our faithful saviour will raise him. And as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 14, we, believers, will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage, comfort each other with these words and knowing the comfort of the gospel yourself while the gift of life continues for you to resolve, while the gift of life continues to you, resolve to persevere like Dad in trusting and following Jesus, to stand firm, letting nothing move you and always give yourself to the work of the Lord as he did, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Amen. Thank you, Neil, for uh, wonderfully bringing us God's word and uh, the challenge and the comfort of the gospel. We have come today also to, uh, uh, to praise God and to uh, speak with him and to uh, cast our burdens upon him, to give thanks to him for his great love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend some time now in prayer, and I'm going to invite Emily and Mary to lead us in our prayers to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we can come before you today uh, to spend time um, thanking you for the life of uh, Ross Chambers, father, grandfather, great-grandfather. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for how you have kept him through the trials and periods of suffering in his life. Uh, Lord, that he continued to walk with you and that you continued to guide his path. Father, we thank you for the blessings you bestowed upon him. Lord, most especially for his enduring faith and, Lord, for his marriage to Audrey. Father God, we thank you uh, that you were able to use that marriage for your service. And, Lord, we thank you for the blessings of their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren and many friends. Father God, we thank you that you were able to use them to teach their children and families about you and through them you have brought many to yourself. 
Our Father God, we thank you that he knew you and trusted in you and for the many ways that you grew, sustained and blessed him. Father God, I thank you for the love that you gave him for his fellow neighbour, uh, close by and far away, and for his care and interest in your work in so many areas. Lord, for his kindness and interest that he showed in that all that he knew, for his enduring care for those around him. Lord, we thank you most especially for his love of Audrey and that you have aided him as he sought to care for her and serve her in these final years. Father God, there is so much that we can be thankful for in the life of Grandpa. Father, I pray that you would use him as an example to us, that like him, we would seek to love those around us, that like your son Jesus and your servant Ross, we would seek to do your good, and that at times of joy, sadness and suffering, much of which Grandpa knew as well, we would also persevere and trust in you. Father, I pray that you would sustain us in your work. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Let's continue to pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you, Lord, are the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort and our only help in times of need. And to you, dear Lord, we turn today to ask you for your comfort, your compassion and peace for all who will miss Grandpa and feel a deep sadness at his loss. Father, it is very hard to know what to say, hard sometimes to know what to ask you for. So we just ask you humbly now for your comfort and peace to be with us all. Lord, you know our hearts and minds far better than we know them ourselves. You know the needs of each of us, the struggles and the sorrow that we feel. Be with each person here today and those who mourn Grandpa elsewhere and give to each what we need. Comfort, rest, company or trust and help us to know that peace that only you can give. We pray particularly, Lord, for Grandpa's family and especially for Grandma that you would surround her with love and comfort and help her, Lord, to rest on you. We pray, Lord, that all who grieve Grandpa's loss would follow his example of a life lived in step with your spirit, overflowing with love and concern for others. Give us, Lord, the concern that he had for those suffering and in trouble and the commitment to look after them and seek their good. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you as his were fixed on you, and to be anchored firmly in your word and with a sure and certain hope for the future that you have promised us. Give us all the assurance that Grandpa had of the life to come with you and help us to remain faithful and trusting as he did. Thank you, gracious Lord, that death is not an end, that Grandpa's story goes on with you into eternity. Help us, Lord, amidst our sorrow to be comforted by this promise that if we also trust in Jesus and accept your grace and mercy, that, that, that we too one day will enter there, our home with you. Thank you, Lord, that we might one day see Grandpa again and stand side by side with him, praising and worshipping you forever and ever. Thank you, gracious Lord, for this comfort and hope and be with us all as we wait patiently for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Emily and Mary. Well, this morning has been a uh, wonderful time, has it not, to uh, uh, reflect on Ross's life, uh, to hear the promises of God, uh, to encourage each other and to be challenged uh, by the, uh, uh, the words of the gospel. And uh, we'll continue to be doing so uh, throughout today. Uh, a time such as this is a time to reflect on uh, Ross's life. Uh, in fact, after we heard of his passing during the week, I was meeting with the elders of our church and we uh, spent some time just... Uh, uh, sharing our own individual uh, reflections and appreciation and encouragement that we'd received from Ross. 
Uh, perhaps uh, summed up most nicely by our other minister, Peter, who simply said, my wife and I named our son Ross after Ross Chambers. It's a good tribute. And uh, indeed, we, can, uh, we ought to be following his example as he followed the example of Christ, uh, putting, uh, putting the Lord first in our lives and uh, trusting in the things which Neil has spoken of uh, today in terms of the work that Christ has done on the cross uh, to pay the penalty for our sin and in his resurrection to pay the way so that we might uh, enjoy eternal life with God our Heavenly Father. After this service, which will conclude shortly, uh, there will be a committal at the Innes Gardens uh, Memorial uh, Chapel and uh, everyone is invited along to that. Uh, that will be a short service. Uh, followed at 12.30 by a time at the family home, Numbaddy, uh, which is on the, uh, the Ruins Way, uh, just uh, past the Honour Church. And uh, there'll be uh, refreshments served there and that'll be in time to uh, uh, spend with one another, to keep on talking, keep on encouraging, keep on comforting one another at this time and everybody is invited to that. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.